everybody you know who leaves everybody spites the idea of leaving but then you know all these events happen like you know you lose someone and then you know uh, something happens to you like you see death like really close and then you like okay do i want to stay and die or do i go and survive Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Artpasses podcast, a series by Bossler Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. In this week's episode, we speak to the incredible Ayman Al-Hussein, a self-taught Syrian cinematographer and filmmaker. Ayman discovered his passion while filming his journey to the UK, which led to his involvement in the documentary Ayman, telling his own story by Deadbeat Films. Eamon has since shot films for NGOs including Choose Love and UNHCR, as well as creative projects for the NHS and artists like Anne-Marie. He also works as an authenticity consultant on films, including The Swimmers and Jungle. His latest project is the incredible short film Matar, which he shot and co-wrote. In this episode, we talk to Eamon about his life, growing up in Syria, witnessing and being part of the revolution, and then the subsequent war. We speak a lot about his incredibly difficult decision to leave Syria, first to Turkey, and then his extraordinary journey to the UK. We end the conversation talking about his incredible work that he's done since being here, including the film Matar, which came out recently and is really, really good. So, Amen. at the start of all our episodes, um, we always ask our guests the same question, which is to, if you can, think of a work of art or a film or music or something that really stays with you from your life, something that maybe changed your life or affected you or really touched you as a young person or even now. Uh, something I've made or something no, that I've No, it doesn't seen. have to be. Something as well, like, for example, when I was studying the Egyptian Revolution uh, during my master's, mm-hmm. I came across this book um, called Walls of Freedom, which is basically like a, a book that documented the street art of the Egyptian Revolution. And mm-hmm. after reading it, it just completely like changed my life in the sense that it's, I was able to understand what happened during the revolution through art. It doesn't have to be something so specific, but maybe even just like something that influenced you in your early life. Um, this would be funny, but like, <laughs> it's very similar to what you were mentioning. Mm. Um, back in Syria in 2011, um, I was 17 and, you know, the Arab Spring, um, started and people were like talking about revolutions and stuff um me and my friends used to go out and um write on the walls you know about freedom and stuff Mm. and it kind of you know kept getting better because at the beginning we used to be like very scared we'd do it like very quickly um just like write freedom on the wall and then run away yeah and then over time it became like more and more artistic Mm. Um, and it was so beautiful to see that. And then it, it just kept, um, you know, over time people started, um, singing and making revolution songs. And, yeah. um, I remember in that time it was like really, it, it, it used to give me goosebumps mm. when I listened to those songs and, um, so yeah, I would think that that was something that stayed with me for a long time. Um, yeah, I can so imagine that. And um, I guess it's also that moment, at least from what I gather in Egypt, it was like that, just that kind of change where the people were able to kind of reclaim the public space and not be, you know, like it was this kind of unifying moment. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I actually, like, I've never thought about it until you asked me now. But when I think back in memories, um, like, from, you know, from my 
from the time when I became an adult, basically after mm. 17 and stuff, that was like one of the first things that sort of opened my eyes and I was like, wow, you know. Um, and I didn't think about it as a form of art or anything. I just, now when reflecting and looking back, um, I think it was a beautiful art that sort of inspired people and like, um, you know, it, it created a re revolution basically. Yeah. Um, through these um, phrases on the walls and the music that people used to sing and the chants. Mm. Um, yeah. No, it's so nice. Thank you for sharing that. No and pleasure. welcome to the Arpsis podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you. I was wondering, maybe just going on from that, if you could tell us a bit about your early life, where you grew up in Syria and what your life was like. Uh, my life was very unusual. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my dad uh, was a police officer. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and it, it goes back a long way, basically. He, he, he didn't want to be a police officer, but like once he was beaten up by police and he, mm. he was a teacher um, because he didn't do his military service. And then eventually it was like, um, I'm just going to go study law and I want to be a judge. But then he ended up being a police officer. Wow. Um, uh, when in the result of that, um, because of his job, we used to move every two years. Okay like almost every two years because mm -hmm. um, he had to be all over the country. So I was born in Damascus, lived there for three years or four years, and then we moved to another city, Homs, and then we moved to Aleppo, and like we moved within Aleppo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I have these chats sometimes with my friends when they talk about like their childhood and like their friends from school. Mm. And, you know, most people sort of uh, went to the same school for years and years, you know. Um, but for me, I I changed schools so much yeah. that I, I don't remember anybody, almost anybody um, from my, like, primary or secondary school friends because mm. it just kept changing. Always changing, yeah. Yeah. And even in Syria, people people used to tell me, well, where are you from? You know, like, are you from Aleppo? Are you from Damascus? Are you from the suburbs of Aleppo? And I'm like, I am born in Damascus. Because, <laughs> like, um, my accent was, my my dialect was all over the place. Yeah. Was like, half the Messine, half, half Aleppo, half... So <laughs> even in Syria, I was like, you know, it was all over the place. Mm. Um, but in a way, I think it, it was, you know, everything has a positive side. It's painful, yeah. but like, I guess I just met more people and grew up in different environments and different towns. And, you know, even within Syria, you see different cultures. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I grew up. And then most of my life basically was... In and around Aleppo, Aleppo. Um, until I was 17, yeah. And how, how was it for, like, your dad and your family when the revolution started? Was he expected to kind of, was, I don't really know how it works, but if you're a policeman, are you expected to kind of, was he, like, out on the streets in the opposite way? Yeah, so my dad um, was retired way before the revolution, I ah, think okay. around 2007. Mm. The regime in Syria was very corrupt, and to survive, you know, you need to be some sort of corrupt. So he was always sort of fighting that, and like he didn't want to be corrupt. Mm. And when they saw that it's not working with him, um, they 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 got him retired. Um, wow! Although it wasn't his retirement age, he was like okay. fifty years old. Ah. Um. So what he did after, he, he became a lecturer um, at a police school. Okay. Teaching law and stuff and became a lawyer as well. So 
which you know they they didn't care about that but it's just being because he had a really strong position in one of mm. the big police departments in Aleppo and like when you've got someone who's not corrupt blocking because it's it's a it's a it's a system you yeah. know it's a so everybody has to be corrupt for it to work and it doesn't work when you have someone blocking things so um so he became a, te- a lecturer and when the revolution started he <laughs> so him um and my stepmom went out early in the morning around five like four a.m or something and they brought they sprayed um freedom phrases and like wow phrases against corruption on one of the school's walls and a taxi driver saw them and saw my dad's car number plate and then we reported that (laughs) yeah I mean it's a very long story but basically he woke up next day and the car wasn't there and then two weeks later he got um, a call and they were like you need to come we have it we need to chat Oh my god! And then he went there and like obviously denied everything, um, and then they were like, "Look, we've got eyes on you." Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, um, didn't stop him. Um, yeah. So, because he was a lecturer, um, mm. he teamed up with his colleagues who had the same vision, you know, against the regime, and they all sort of left the school with like hundred students or something. It was like <laughs> it was a nightmare for the regime. Everybody was talking about it, and then he literally left the country the same or like the next day. Wow! And he was lucky to be able to leave, yeah. Because at the border, he could have been stopped. So mm. the main police officer at the border turns out to be someone who he knew because everybody knew him, and then yeah. and he was like, "Yeah, I'll let you go." Oh my god. <laughs> And they let him go, and then yeah. Thank God. So yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm talking about my dad. (laughs) But it's so interesting. It's. I mean, he sounds like an incredible guy. That's so brave. And what were you doing at this point? Were you? Did you leave with him, or did you stay? I um. I don't want to leave. Um, Mm. When it kicked off really badly. There was this time when I went to Lebanon for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And in that time, my dad um, left Syria. Okay. So I came back and literally the day after he left, and I was like staying with my brother and sister. And they were like, yeah, we're all going to have to leave now. And I was like, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they left and... I stayed at my uncle's and like my aunties and I was just here and there. Um, also got caught way before that, got caught because of protesting twice, first time for two days. And then the second time was bad. It was between two to three weeks. Mm. And then when I left that, my uncle was like, look, you're just going to have to leave now. Like there's no yeah. other option. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did leave. I went to Turkey for a week and mm-hmm. then I went back. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I can't do this. Yeah. This is completely different, different language. And I, I just want to go home. I went back. They started bombing, bombing mm-hmm. the town. And I mean, even before that, but like it started, it was really bad. And a lot of people were dying. And then I kind of almost died. Really? Yeah, I was like a few seconds away from where the uh, shell landed. Wow. Did you um, get injured? Literally. No. 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 I was so lucky, literally like five to ten seconds. Um, I had a motorbike where there was a big square. Basically, mm. I was there uh, driving and then... I had the noise and then I just went into one of the streets and like, cause I knew the town, I knew there was like a basement somewhere where like a building was in new construction. Yeah. It was like, there's a basement there. I literally like threw my motorbike and ran that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I was slightly injured, but like, you know, like scratches, yeah. nothing more. Um, but coming out, I was like, oh my God. I look around, there were like 60 people um, who died that day. Oh my God. Obviously, I didn't see them in the moment, but like I saw yeah. hundreds of people injured. But then in the end, there were like 60 people who died. Um, because you know it's like the main square yeah. um, of the town, and like they literally targeted that. Yeah, knowing that it's literally civilian, and it was—I think it was the night before Eid. Oh my god! The day, like the day before Eid, yeah. uh, in the afternoon, and it was Ramadan, so like people were fasting and stuff. So yeah. it was really ridiculous. Um, and that 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 moment, I was like, okay, <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah, I guess when you can see how like brutal a regime is prepared to be, but it must have been it's such a hard decision to leave. But that so that was the moment that you thought, okay, I'm going to yeah, go to like, Turkey. Everybody, you know, who leaves, everybody fights the idea of leaving. Yeah. But then, you know, all these events happen. Like, you know, you lose someone and then, you know, uh, something happens to you. Like, you see death, like, really close. And then yeah. you're like, okay, do I want to stay and die or do I go and survive? Yeah. So a lot of people have this decision to make. Mm. It's not an easy decision, you know, like me yeah. going to Turkey and going back to Syria. In fact, I didn't go back once. I went back like five or ten times. Really? Like every time I went back in that first six months I left, mm. um, I just, you know, every time something would happen, I'd be like, okay, yeah, it's not, it's not going to work. Yeah. And were and then, you, were you yeah. t- um, taking photos and like filming at this point or were you not, was that not some, something that came kind of later to you? Um, at that time, we were students, so we used to protest before all the bombing and, you know, the uh, killing. Um, mm. We used to protest as, like, small groups. Uh, so all we did is, like, film the protests yeah. on our phones yeah. and then share those on YouTube and, like, Facebook and everywhere. Literally, why? you know, same as everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And then at least... Um, uh, but like I, I originally like I liked I loved photography, mm. um, but I didn't do anything more than that until I left. And my my idea was that I wanted to be a doctor. Yes. Um, because my mom died from cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. And she always wanted me to be a doctor, so yeah. I was like, okay, I'm I'm gonna try to be a doctor. Um, and then, so yeah, I've never thought of doing any, any form of art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then that didn't happen. And mm. I went to Turkey to, yeah, the reason why we left in the end, I was like, okay, unis are going to start soon. I need to think about uni. And yeah. So I've just move on because this doesn't seem to be like something that's going to get resolved. Mm. And then my family were like telling me and trying to convince me, well, look, you could go study uni and then when you finish, you could go back. Yeah. And, you know, you would have your degree. You'd be able to, you know, be part of the, you know, rebuilding the country and like help people. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound very bad. (laughs) And then, so I started researching and unis and stuff. I started looking at options in Turkey. I don't know. I just found a uni, and they were like they had a they had a few options, and I went with dental prosthetics, mm-hmm. which I was like, "Well, this is not what my mum wanted, but <laughs> it's similar <laughs> <laughs> in the same field." Yeah, same it will help people. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I started my life in Turkey yeah. and started going to uni. I was the only foreigner in the class. Wow. Yeah, I had to learn Turkish 
very quickly because I didn't have time. Mm. Um, and I needed a certain level of uh, Turkish to be accepted. So I had an intense sort of course. I learned Turkish in three months. Wow. I got that degree that I wanted. I was like <laughs> ready for uni in three months. Oh my God. That's and so then, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's crazy. Amazing. I was surprised like to do that in three months. Um, and then started uni, uh, started a new life, I would say, because mm. I was on my own from that point uh, in Istanbul. Um, my family were in the south near the yeah. border of Syria. Okay. And then I made friends at uni and like uh, some like some of my uni friends became like really best friends. Mm. And then I was like, you know what, I actually really like Turkey. Um, I feel like it's like becoming like home for me after, you know, two to three years it's just started. It was like I literally almost became Turkish. Yeah. <laughs> People wouldn't like recognize that I am uh from a different country. Mm. My Turkish was perfect and people couldn't tell that I'm like coming from anywhere else and then yeah. my friends were like from uni everybody was really happy you know mm. and then you know I finished uni and I was like okay so Syria is not getting any better yeah uh I tried to go mm-hmm. and I did and that was oh, really? um I wouldn't go into that very much but it was sure. when ISIS was there and I went there and I wanted to go to our hometown mm. near Aleppo. But I basically I was five kilometers in the border and then I was just trapped there. Wow. So I couldn't continue. Yeah. And then I wanted to go back and they were like, Well, you can't go back. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> because we were like we were like kind of trapped and like yeah. ISIS was very close and then what happened is I, I can't remember why but um i think it's something to do when you enter the border from turkey to syria so i staying i think you, you need to stay at least a week or two or something and then i had to go back i i honestly can't remember why but yeah i couldn't go back officially through the border so mm-hmm. I had to come back illegally. Um, and yeah, that was a mess and was very dangerous. And like the Turkish um, military was like shooting in the air and like trying to scare people. And God. some people died. Um, so, and then I managed to come back and I was like, okay, what do I do now? Mm. I applied for a work permit three times in Turkey and they were like as a refugee you won't get a work permit okay and every time they used to make a different excuse mm. then in the end they just told me like you can't get it and I was like cool <laughs> <laughs> it was annoying because you know I studied there and like yeah. I speak the language perfectly and like I'm graduated in Turkish University yeah. and I have nowhere to go <laughs> mm. And then at that point, my student visa expired. My student um, permit yeah. expired. And I basically had no permit to stay. Yeah. But I could stay. They would kick me out. Mm. I could stay as a refugee with no rights. Yeah. Um, you, you can't work. You can't travel. You can't do anything. Yeah. You don't know what your future is like. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can do it. I can survive. And then I started working in the tourism industry, mm. cash in hand. Um, and it was awful. Like they, they would pay me half of what they would pay a Turkish person okay. for doing the same thing. Yeah. And that generated hate in the culture. People mm. are like, oh. Syrians are working for half the price and like this is affecting everybody. Yes. Um, it was very stupid from the government because 
they created this hate culture mm. um, by doing that and not allowing people to have equal rights. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a few months and it was a really awful experience. Um, but I was clever enough to make some money mm. that would pay for my sort of dinghy yeah. uh, to Greece. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Hossam Fazullah, co-founder of Bosta Arts. I'm very happy to announce that our latest issue, The Brink, is now out. The Brink features the work of seven Ukrainian artists who contemplate the impact of Russia's full-blown invasion of Ukraine on their lives and work. As an Art Persists podcast listener, you can get 15% using the code TAP with double P. That's T-A-P-P. Order now at bostlaarts.com. That's B-O-S-L-A-A-R-T-S dot com. Now back to the podcast. Okay, so you're in Turkey and you're going, you have no choice really but to leave. Um, can you tell us what happened? So, yeah, basically I tried to stay and did this tourism work and really got exploited I felt like this is not going to take me anywhere mm. but still wanted to stay and then in that time my family everybody was calling me because by that time they were all in uh, Sweden um, okay. my dad and brother and my brother-in-law they all took a dinghy and went together to Greece okay um, my dad had savings and he paid for everyone and then They got there and they were like, look, you can't just stay there. Mm. You have to leave. Um, and then I was like, no, I'm not leaving. It's <laughs> 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 the same me again yeah. in Syria, basically. Mm. Um, I, was, I was like, you guys left. I'm not leaving. They left Syria. I didn't leave. And then same in Turkey happened. I was like, I don't want to leave. Yeah, you have a life there. I literally have a life. And I had friends that, you know, like had the best um, moments in my life with and mm. we're like very close and it just felt like home for me I was like yeah. okay this is my second home I just don't want to leave this because mm. it took years for me to sort of feel like home again but then when looking about looking at it and then I was talking to my friends and they were like look Eamon like we don't want you to leave like Because, you know, we're friends and we don't want to lose you. But they were like, it might be the best option because mm -hmm. you have no future here. And I was like, well, if you say so, like, because um, I, I, you know, I, I was like, I don't know who to listen to. You know, you just yeah. get lost. You're like, I don't know. And then when everybody was saying that, I was like, maybe it's the right decision to make. It was very difficult to make that decision. Yeah. And it took a lot of <laughs> arguments and conversations but then I was like okay fine yeah and I decided to do it and went to Bodrum which is in South Turkey and tried to find a smuggler through Facebook and stuff and had to put my money at a, a gift shop oh, there was a Turkish lady there and she was like why are you leaving mm. I was like well, I have no life here, I have no future. And she was like, no, you speak Turkish, you speak English. Um, I can find you a job. I was like, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> But like when she referred to a job, which is like a cash and hand job, which is again like exploitation. Yeah. And like even the smuggler, <laughs> even the smuggler offered me a job. No He way. was like, I'll pay you $100 a day if you work with me as a translator. Oh, my God. I was like, no way. <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> um, but I could have, you know, like, I could have been so many things. Yeah. But, like, I don't want to, you know. Yeah. Like, I I could have made $100 a day working with a smuggler, but, like, I'll be, I'll be evil, you yeah. know. So, yeah. Luckily, that lady was like, okay, if you decide to go, I'm going to speak to the smuggler and tell them to put you in a safe boat. Mm. Um, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Is there ever a safe boat? I mean... Yeah, never. So, yeah, um, 
luckily made it from the first journey, but mm-hmm. it was a hectic journey and it took like 10 hours. The engine broke and that was the time when I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I have to film this. Mm. So tried to document it was dark it was night like looked at the footage basically see nothing from that um and then i was like maybe i should just film my whole just document all the moments and started doing that yeah stayed in greece for like two weeks get trying to wait for a paper that allows us to leave um and then i just documented everything i can on my phone and I was like very worried that I would lose that footage, so I was like sending it on WhatsApp to like all my friends. And, mm. Um, I wasn't really like I had no idea about like filmmaking or like you know the, how how you like get good footage or something or yeah. how you film this and that. Um, which can tell like I, I was sending it on WhatsApp. I didn't <laughs> know that I would lose all the quality. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, at least you know it's documented. Yeah, then, no, I can understand that. Yeah, and I'm glad I did that for most parts. A lot of it got lost because mm. I lost one of my phones, which had a lot on it. But some which I had sent on WhatsApp, mm. I got back eventually from my friends. And then I went to Calais. I yeah. fast forward because yeah. um, got to Calais first night and I had my cousin who was my two cousins who had made it to the UK um mm. six months or a year before me we're like oh we know some people who are still there <laughs> <laughs> if you go there they can you know look after you and make sure you're around and got there it was dark and it was nighttime and they're like do you have a tent i was like no i have nothing and i was terrified yeah I when i saw the jungle it was absolutely um I was like, I've never seen such thing, you mm. know. Um, and I was like, am I, like, the first question I had in my head was that, am I making the wrong decision here mm. coming to <laughs> to the jungle? But my idea was like that I, I spent four years in Turkey trying to perfect the Turkish language and, like, um, integrate in the culture and just feel like I am, part of the society mm. um i just didn't want to go anywhere else um to learn another language and spend five years or four years to learn another language because i spoke english so i was like i'm just yeah. going to go to the uk yeah and uh having my cousins here also helped of course yeah um so that was my idea and I was like I'll give it a go I'll try stay there for a few weeks and see if I can make it and then that ended up being a year God (laughs) and did you have Um, did you have like people there that were like did you have friends there and people there you could rely on and like support you there not support you but um, like you know a a strong community not really like that when I first arrived it was people that I don't know before, but like my cousins knew, mm. um, and I just made friends. You yeah, know? Uh, met a lot of people, and like was, talk, was talking to a lot of people, and eventually made this you know friendships with uh, people in the camp, and then we started sort of going together to try and get to the UK somehow. Mm-hmm. We're like jumping on the trains, um, or like hiding in the lorries, uh, or like trying to jump the fences and get to the pole. Um, and then during that time, I was also like documenting moments and like the police brutality and like how they used to tear gas the camp, yeah. Um, Luckily, like, there were a lot of organizations there who were, like, looking after people and, like, feeding people. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a lot of chats with a lot of volunteers who were, like, were giving us 
sort of moral support, I'd say, yeah. and food and everything. It just felt nice. We like even before getting to the UK, we just felt welcomed, mm. although we haven't made it yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and obviously, like following the news, like I was always following the news and like seeing how things are. Mm. I was like, "Is this real?" Like the government says, people are not welcome. Mm. Um, but what I saw, like all the volunteers, were like, "Not really." <laughs> yeah, the government isn't really reflecting reality there. Um, but anyways, uh, I met up. Uh, there's a film crew filming um, in the camp. There was there was a lot of film crews, yeah, coming and documenting news and stuff. Did few interviews here and there, and then it just felt very weird. Like, yeah, how does it feel like to be a refugee in the camp? And I, so I kind of lost my trust with a lot of them. Um, yeah, but there was this film crew which. Someone came to him and he's like, can you come? It looks like there's a fight there or something. These guys um, are trying to say something we don't understand. Um, and I went there because I spoke English. It wasn't very good, but it was good enough to communicate. They were like, uh, hi, we're just trying to film something here um, in the camp. But like these guys seem to be angry at us. Mm. And, I was like, no, they're not. They're just telling you to please, like, share the share reality, it. share what's happening, wow. and share that we're all the same and we're all humans. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were nice guys, and which which uh, they the deadbeat boys. Yeah. Um, they were like, we really don't want to make any trouble. We're just saying, like, we want to document. And, like, we, we're not here to film. We we're volunteering. Mm. <laughs> we we are going to film to show what's happening. But, like, if people don't want that, it's okay. Like, no, it's fine. They're like, do you mind please helping us? We um, need, like, some advice and how, how to, like, do you want to talk to people? And so, anyway, so... We sat and we sat Chan and Chan and they're like basically yeah we want to make this documentary um, about um, the camp and like the people mm. and like hear from the people. And I was like cool and they're like can we interview you? I was like sure. So they did a lot of interviews with a lot of people, but I guess like there wasn't always enough to make like a documentary or something yeah um, they were like can we make the documentary about your story mm. and like from your vision I was like sure and then um, they sort of you know finished filming in Calais and left and then they were like do you let us know when you get to the UK and we won't share the film until you're there okay um, I was like cool that's good yeah. <laughs> so yeah I spent the whole year in Calais um, even like been to Germany been to Brussels mm. it's like you get on a lorry it takes you everywhere <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually I was like I need to find something new and then I was like okay I have this idea a suitcase put a suitcase put myself in a suitcase a friend like sort of took it and put it in the on a coach that was going and then I eventually made it. Yeah. And then got there and I called them and I was like, Hey, I am in Victoria station. They're like, What? <laughs> <laughs> how when was was this how long after they finished like filming the film did you arrive in the UK? I think more like seven months. Or seven something. months, wow. Yeah. Maybe eight. And then the film comes out much later or not later? When did the film actually come out, Ayman? So that was the sort of dilemma where I I was very scared yeah. of the film. Yeah. Because I applied for asylum and then I was like, 
you guys, if you share this film and the Home Office sees that yeah. film, me talking about the government, I might get rejected. Yeah. Um, they were like, it's totally fine. Um, we could just wait until whenever you want. Mm. And I was like, great. So well, I just kept waiting on it and it took me three years to get my leave to remain. Okay. Um, and through all that time, obviously, like we, we did like an annual um, interview where like they got all the updates and stuff mm. about what's going on. And then we only released the film when I got my papers. Got your papers, yeah. In two thousand, September two thousand nineteen. Well, it's an amazing film, and actually, I watched it for the first time at the premiere of the second film, Matar. And um, mm. I have to say, like, it was it was quite emotional <laughs> to watch the first film yeah. where you feature in it, and then to see you like talking about it on stage, and just see like. I don't know. I think what you capture in both films so well is the like the vulnerability that people feel, the utter loneliness of it. And um yeah, I think in the second film Matar, which is based on your experience but not it's um acted by uh Ahmed Malik who does such a great job, I think. Um and for those who are listening and haven't seen either film, I'll put links to make sure you can see it. Um, and yeah, I think it's just that idea of someone not, like, you know, that idea that you don't even know who you trust. So even your friends, you you know, you capture the fear that you that you can feel by not knowing, you know, who's gonna tell on you, especially when it comes to doing kind of cash in hand work or that kind of thing. How does it feel for you to watch back uh, Amen as the film now? Um, I have a confession to make. Every time it got screened, I left the room. Really? <laughs> no way. I I couldn't. Yeah. Um, I think when we premiered Mata for the first time, I I sat there and watched it, but I wasn't looking mm. at the screen the whole time. Um. Yeah, I, I just find it very weird. Um, like, I just don't, I don't believe that that was me. Like, I, I just, yeah. I struggle to understand how that happened and why that happened and why did I do all of this? It's just very strange. Mm. I don't know. I find it very cringe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's definitely not cringe, but, but obviously, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, it's, I don't know how to explain it, to be honest, mm. but it's, it's, it just always makes me think about how did this happen? And like, it makes me think back and yeah, I'm like, I would never do that now. Mm. You know? um, but like, obviously, when you don't have options, you just, you see yourself doing things that you would never do. Yeah. Absolutely. And that was why I did. Um, um, obviously, you know, it's been like eight years mm. um, since that film was shot. Um, so, yeah, it is, you know, like, I love that it's there. And, like, yeah. I love to uh, to know that, to, to, to compare the journey and see, like, how far I've come. And it's definitely a, a very great reminder that, you know, people can, can heal and people mm. can eventually, you know, find home and have a normal life if, yeah. if they if they're surrounded by good people and if they are given the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Um, At what point for you do you think you were like, okay, the you know this place, the UK is is now my home? When did you start to feel like it was actually your home? Um. I started to get that feeling after I got my papers. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So for the first three years, I was living in fear. Mm. Um, like absolute fear and trauma. And you know, the way the home office treats, treats people is oh. that 
you're always on edge, yes. you know, like you're always scared. You don't know what's going on. It just felt the same as um, in Turkey when I wasn't allowed to work, but even worse because this time I was threatened with deportation. Yeah. They're like, oh, you have fingerprints in France, you have fingerprints in Germany. Well, yeah, I have fingerprints everywhere, but like, I want to be here. Yeah. You know, everyone has fingerprints. It's like lottery. Mm. They pick and choose who they want. Yeah. Um, and why take three years, you know, like to think about what you want to do with me and like make me live in fear for the whole yeah. time. And the game behind that is that there's something called voluntary return. Mm. It's to push people to the, point where they're like okay you know what i don't want this yeah. um, um, um i can't handle this anymore send me back yeah and they used to send me letters saying if you want to go home um here's a here are like some numbers you could call yeah so it yeah i've never felt like even until now like i do feel like i'm home but sometimes i'm like maybe not yeah <laughs> I I don't I I like the idea of home has changed for me. I like, can imagine. Yeah. Before, you know, I always thought Syria is my home and that's all I wanted like this that's all I wanted. I wanted to be home. I wanted to be in Syria when I was in Turkey, I wanted to go back and but now I'm like um I'm just questioning the idea of home. What is home? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think it's anything but, you know, the people and you, well, like you're happy and you have, you have your friends, you have, um, your loved ones and where you are actually happy. Yeah. Um, and home can always change. Um, you know, a lot of people change, change cities, change towns just to have a better life yeah. and feel happier. So I don't know how I feel about home and the idea of it, mm. but I feel like home would be wherever you, you like. You're happy. Yeah. And you have people that you're happy to be around. Um. Um. Yeah. It's it's a strange one. It is. No. <laughs> but like for me, especially because even in Syria, like we, as a family, we moved around a lot. Yeah, that's very true. So like, I don't really know what home is. Yeah. Um. I've never had a home which I've stayed for like 10 years mm. or something. And I really want to do that. You know, like my dream is to have a home and like just live there and like not necessarily live there the whole time, but like just have a house have yeah, somewhere, wherever it is in the world and just like keep that forever and like, when I have children in the future, they'll be like, okay, this is our home. Mm. I really wanted to give that, you know, to my children, if I ever have children. Yeah. Um, because I've never experienced that mm. because of so many things. Yeah, no, of course, <laughs> of course. And I can yeah. still understand that, that kind of stability and just something that will not change, will not be taken from you, will not be, yeah, will be yeah. constant. Absolutely. Exactly, Yeah. Um, I really, really hope you get that home one day. <laughs> thanks. Hopefully. Um, so, yeah, that's the idea of home. It's a yeah. confusing one. <laughs> <laughs> complex. For me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very complex one. Um, I've taken a lot of your time, so I just wanted to end on oh, one last question, um, which is obviously about the way that you, you work and about filmmaking in general. Because... Mm. With Matar, and I, I believe you were also a consultant on the film Swimmers, um, mm -hmm. and I've heard you talk a bit about the importance of of working, um, especially with, with topics such as Matar and the Swimmers, on films where someone, where people involved have had lived experiences, mm -hmm. which is obvious for many reasons. But I wanted just to ask you what you think are the risks or the kind of the clear things that you see when people haven't consulted those with like lived experience? Yeah. Um, so quickly, you know, mm. 
after making Eamon, I was like, this is something I really want to pursue. I want to make films and tell stories, especially when I watched the news and I was like, it's completely not the reality. Mm. Um, and I didn't see like all the ideas and all the things they were saying. A lot of it was wrong. And like, it, it looked like they've never spoken to someone yeah. from that background. Um, so I just wanted to work and like raise these voices. So it was worked for charities, made videos here and there. And this is before I got my papers and after. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, uh, what do I do? And then lockdown came and I was like, okay, well, I just got my papers five months ago and now I can't work. Okay. <laughs> But I didn't accept that idea. I was like, no, I have to do something. I can't just sit around. And I I was like, I'm just going to do delivery. I want to go and give people food. I started with groceries. Mm -hmm. And most of it was delivering groceries to elderly people who were like too scared to go outside. Oh, yeah. And then that kind of became a really sweet thing where like, I started giving people my number and I was like, if you need medication, if you need anything, just call me and mm. I'll, I'll drop it off and you don't have to pay me. Um, and then did that for a little while. And then I was like, oh, I'm really getting bankrupt and I can't afford the rent. So <laughs> I was like, started to do food delivery and mm. did that for like a year and a half. And during that time, I saw all these stories about people and like how it was a really awful job, even if you had papers. Yeah. And obviously, I, I can't talk about this much, but through uh, the three years that I've had um, no papers, mm. there's a lot that I've experienced which I yeah. can't um, talk about. <laughs> Like really a lot, a lot, you know, and having that and then working in the delivery industry for a year and a half and seeing all these stories, Mm. I was like, okay, I need to do something. Then luckily, I got a chance to work on the swimmers Mm. as a supporting artist, like as an extra. Um, but then when I got there and then was speaking to the director and she was like, do you want to be a consultant? I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you know, with Malik mm. sitting next to him and uh, with, with uh, Yusra and Sarah. Yeah. Um, and I was like sort of making sure they say the lines correctly because we were on a dinghy and, mm. you know, the director was too far away. So it's just there monitoring everything, but also a lot of other stuff yeah. in between. So that was like a crash course for me uh, into filmmaking, like proper cinema filmmaking. Mm. And the film ended, um, the, sh- the, sh- the filming ended, and they moved on to post-production. And then I get a call from Sally again. She was like, do you want to come and work with me in the edit room? Mm. Um, just like be a consultant there every day wow. and translate all the scenes, all the rushes, everything. Wow. And just be there yeah. to help. I was like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would say that was an even better experience for me mm. because I've seen every aspect of putting a film together i've done editing before yeah and i was like an editor for like corporate production companies and a lot of different stuff so i i already had knowledge of editing films but this was different this was like a feature film Mm. and i've learned so much from sally and she was very open and very humble and ian the editor was also very nice the editing assistant they were all very lovely and like they obviously um, didn't hesitate to ask me questions. Mm. Like they were always asking me things and I was reviewing literally every single rush and making sure that there's no stumble there or like um, put in this, when they put the scenes together, I'm like, this rush doesn't work with that. Maybe we need to change them mm. around, use this one. 
then they would try it and then literally like everything mm. um and i learned a lot yeah with doing that um because we had all these conversations about how do we do this scene how do we do that scene and like just ex- exchanged a lot of knowledge yeah me sharing the authenticity and like what makes sense from my point of view and them sharing um how films are done mm-hmm. you know and when that finished you know the swimmers came out yeah. and i was like i really want to make something mm. and Throughout that time, for like the whole year working on the swimmers, I've always been, I was always thinking about this idea of a delivery cyclist yeah. who has um, no papers. Mm. Um, and I, it just kept, kept coming back to me again and again and again. And I was like, okay, maybe it's time. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably do something. And then, I pitched it. I pitched it to my friends, Jack and Boris. I I had nothing written down when I <laughs> told them about it. And I was like, I've been thinking about making this short film. They were like, what's, this, what's the idea? I was like, well, this is the idea, blah, blah, blah. They were like, wow, that sounds amazing. Do you want to like write something down? And I was like, yeah. So I went and wrote something down. And then they were like, whoa, this is good. And then mm. we started putting the team together. So I brought Hassan on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we all came together and started working on it. And obviously, you know, working with Malik before and the swimmers yeah. and me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we just like used the contacts. Hassan has a lot of contacts. Yeah. Kind of combined all the work together from Deadbeat, from me, and then Hassan, and then came on board together to write it. But what really helped is that, you know, Matar is sort of a lot of emotions that I've felt mm. um, throughout my time in the UK, but also those that I've seen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it does say based on my experience but I wasn't the real Mata yeah you know what Mata experienced there I've experienced in a different way Mm. in different times and different locations and slightly different forms yeah um and I've never been caught by immigration yeah so that was a different thing but a lot of it you know the emotions and Mm. stuff was all like inspired by the things that I've sort of gone through in the past mm. and those that I'm very close to. Yeah. Um so I think that's what made it um because you know when you have all these things it's kind of makes it easier to write something. And yeah. we were thinking about oh could it be a documentary? You know like no <laughs> <laughs> because it's you know you'd be sabotaging the person. Yeah. And there's a real there are a few real Matas yeah. that I know um, out there in the world uh, trying to survive mm. um, so there were a lot of risks but then we eliminated all these risks by making a docufiction yeah. um, and like just gathering all these stories and mm. obviously there were like the risks of oh if this becomes a thing people would be like aware of that of the um delivery industry people Mm. working illegally and after doing a research turn like it is it's been on the news quite a lot like big newspapers and stuff so it is already a known thing and there are a lot of immigration raids already Mm. on people doing delivery and like they always check so we thought it's not gonna really change anything yeah um and in fact, it could change things in a better way because you, you've, you're given this insight into this guy's life yeah. and how he could actually survive. But he's not, you know, he's being stopped in every from every angle you look at yeah. it. It's just obstacles, obstacles, obstacles. In fact, he's a very hardworking guy who just yeah. wants to have a better life. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, it's such a it's such a fantastic film and so powerful. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, so what what exactly was your role in the process of of making Matar? So in the process of making Matar, obviously, you know, it started with me as an idea, and then um, I brought on the team um, together to make it, which made me an executive producer, mm. and then. Uh, I we Hassan and I co-wrote it together, mm-hmm. um, and then I I shot eighty um, percent of the film. Um, I was the a camera operator, mm-hmm. like the main camera operator on it. And Jack Thompson Rowlands, who's uh, my friend, was the director of photography. Mm. But he was very lovely because. We did everything together, like yeah. from doing the shot listing to choosing the camera. I actually chose the camera <laughs> and the lenses. Um, but like, you know, we did everything together. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very nice because we, you know, we, we got to work together and like do the best for the film. Yeah. Um, by like collaborating together, which something doesn't happen a lot in the industry. Mm. Um, where like usually camera operators don't get involved a lot um, yeah. in that process. But with Jack, um, he was very lovely, and we we did it together, and it was it was a really good success. Mm. Um, so yeah, these were my three roles. On <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you know, with short films, you kind of just end up doing yeah, a lot and a lot. But like we loved it, you know, yeah. everybody loved doing everything um, we can to just make it happen and mm. like make the best story possible. Yeah, and I think I I loved actually watching. I think you can also stream this on Waterbear, but I loved watching like the making of that showed the process behind making the film. Yes, and it really speaks, I think, to exactly what you just said of like um, collaboration and how much you can learn mm. from one another if you just like work together rather than like okay, there's a DOP, there's the writer, there's the actor, and you just do your job, go home, that's it. Um, and in the end, it makes yeah. a much, much better film. Definitely. Collaboration is very important. And when people put their ego aside and just focus on making a good story, yeah, a lot of things can happen, a lot of good things. Which, you know, again, talking about the swimmers, um, mm. when I worked on the swimmers, I felt like I really had a voice. Yeah. Um, I really had an input on a lot of scenes and a lot mm. of um, the decisions. Um, but that, you know, that was part of it being successful mm. because those people who were making it um, had me, had Hassan, had people on board with lived experience, yeah. given input. And not just that, from early stage till the end and you know they've listened yeah it's not just oh yeah we had a consultant um for a day and two and that was it we were involved in literally everything yeah from start to finish um and you know it started with Hassan but Hassan wasn't enough so we're like both of us and even with us like we were super busy working in every department Mm. to make sure it's as authentic as possible yeah and you know you've seen the film it's 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 a result of having people with lived experience working mm. on a story. Like I've, I see a lot of, you know, stories telling um, stories from the Middle East or like mm. from Syria or whatever. You know, it's just like, it's, it's embarrassing. It's it. It is. Honestly, some of it is really embarrassing. You see graffiti on the wall and it's, it's written wrong, you know, yeah. like it's some, some stuff are really awful. Um, and the pa- also, I feel like, so often if the person who made it has not had that experience, then it's, it's like I've, I've, a lot of times I watch something and I just think it's quite patronizing or at least it doesn't mm-hmm. like, it doesn't make the person whose story they're telling, um, like have agency, you know, like so often no. they miss out the first part of their life, for example, before they leave. So you just, it's kind of, yeah, it, it pisses me off yeah. basically when I see that. It is, it's like, yeah, it's <laughs> it's like if I make a film about the UK and Syria, but I've never been to the UK and I, I have nobody telling me about the UK, mm. it would look awful. Yeah. <laughs> it would exactly. absolutely look awful because, you know, I have no knowledge. Mm. 
So what I have to do is bring someone from the UK to tell me all the stories and maybe like even write it with me, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it's really important mm. having people with lived experience or with knowledge um, to, to, to collaborate on films. And that's what we did, you know. We yeah. were lucky with Mata. Um, um, obviously, like the main reason behind me doing it is that I had all these ideas I wanted to deliver. Yeah. Um, but like if it was another story, which I'm not very knowledgeable about, um, I would bring someone on board. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, it's a very yeah. good lesson. And what have you got coming up? What are you working on next? Look, continuing on my point, mm. I have a new short film idea. Oh. Which, yeah, um, I can't spoil it yet. Yeah. But... Uh, I am not very knowledgeable about it. Oh. So I've been doing my research and mm. stuff. It's about a Vietnamese woman. Um, okay. I mean, this could never happen. This is very early stages. But this lady I've um, met in Manchester, mm. um, and she, she's got a really... Uh, she's been through a lot, and she's still... Um, so I'm, I'm thinking, well, I do have my point of view and like mm. I know the story, but I feel like I'm not very familiar with the Vietnam. So I'm thinking I need to get someone who's very knowledgeable to work with me to put this story authentically together. Yeah. Um, nice. So, yeah, that's the next plan. And then on Mata, we've been uh, given development funding Um well, not yet. We did the BBC has uh, to will be given us development funding to write a feature film Yay. for Mata. <laughs> <laughs> that is so exciting. So hopefully, we'll you know in a year or two or three, uh, we'll get to see a uh, long form of Mata. Yeah. Um, oh, that is, is so exciting. Excited about. I, yeah. I remember at the premiere, someone asked that. They were like, what, when are you going to make the feature film? And everyone was like, yeah. <laughs> so that's so exciting. Well, I can't wait for both those films. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, it's just, it feels very special that mm. we get to tell stories from our perspective, um, things that we've experienced and you know, raise these voices mm. that were blocked by the media. Yeah. Which is shocking, you know. Yeah. Like you hear about the, the news and the Titan and then a boat where like 750 people sank and like it doesn't get the coverage it deserves. So for us as artists, I'm a filmmaker. I'll do my part in making films or working on films that try to create change or make change in the in the world and in the industry itself, because also, you know, the industry needs to change. Um, yeah, if everybody does their part in their sector or, you know, uh, career, like the world would be a better place. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for having me. It's been so great to chat with you. And yeah, I really look forward to everything you've got coming up. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much. Really lovely to chat to yeah, you. Yeah, it's so nice to chat to you. We'd like to thank Ayman Al Hussein for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to watch Ayman or Matar, please find the links in the description. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Art Persists podcast. If you're enjoying listening, please subscribe and leave a review in whichever app you listen. Only with your help can these important stories be heard.